At the international level, the negotiations, I would say, are not going well. <laughs> you know, every year there's a new conference of the parties. Uh, you know, there's now COP25 or whatever number we're up to, where where 200 nations get together and discuss this, and they're not making good headway. This is the Geese Download, a podcast from the University of Illinois' Geese College of Business. I'm your host, Tim Sinclair, and today our guest is Don Fullerton, an author, researcher, and professor of finance, as well as agricultural and consumer economics at Geese. In a nutshell, Don studies the effects of environmental policy on the economy. Then he presents that research to world leaders and decision makers to help them craft laws and adjust taxes, which ideally ease our impact on the world we live in and fairly distribute those costs. Heading into college, however, this career path would have come as a surprise to Don. I guess I always thought that I would be an academic, and uh, I didn't take any economics until my sophomore year, and then I was uh, sort of a a B student or C's in some things until I took economics and started getting A's in that. So I thought, oh, okay, (laughs) maybe there's a natural proclivity there. 40 years later, it turns out those good grades in economics were no fluke. My field now is uh, environmental economics and policy. Um, And my focus within that field is uh, about the economic effects of environmental policy, uh, such as a carbon tax or other ways to reduce uh, polluting emissions. So it could be a tax on emissions or it could be a cap and trade system or there's other policies, uh, energy policies that will reduce greenhouse gas emissions such as uh, energy standards and uh, fuel economy standards and energy efficiency requirements. It's both complex and delicate work, and it's work that perhaps I oversimplified in my earlier description. The kinds of studies I'm doing now go back to uh, where I started in this profession 40 years ago, which was in not in environmental economics at all, but in public economics, where I was looking at effects of taxation, including... Uh, well, all different U.S. taxes, and I was kind of a tax guy looking at corporate income taxes, for example, and effects on investment incentives and effects on uh, the distribution of uh, after-tax income. So, in other words, how much do all these taxes redistribute from rich to poor or vice versa and uh, simulating uh, the effects of a carbon tax on how much they'd have to pay for gasoline or electricity and other goods and uh, adding up all those costs on each different kind of household. So every environmental action has an economic effect, I would imagine, in some way, shape, or form, and your job is to try to determine how much and uh, what impact that has on on the American family? Well, exactly, with different kinds of families. Uh, There's been a lot of focus on whether a carbon tax is regressive. There's kind of a presumption, for example, that a carbon tax takes a higher fraction of, I mean, the burden is a higher fraction of income for those with low income because, you know, low-income families have to have electricity and they have to have a certain amount of heat and gasoline and other things that use fossil fuels, and but their income's very low. So that burden might add up to a high fraction of their income. And then at the other end of the spectrum, rich people, uh, 
have a lot more income, and so they certainly buy more of all those things, you know, more gasoline and electricity, but it's a lower fraction of their high income. So the burden as a fraction of income is falling with income, and that's what we call a regressive tax system. The burden's higher, fraction as a fraction of income, the burden's higher on the poor than it is on the rich. Your job is to find out uh, the numbers, just get the information, or are you working to then try to impact change once you've come up with these conclusions? My academic research is strictly objective, and uh, I don't try to advocate for policy in my academic research. I just try to get published in the best economic and policy journals and business journals. That, there's a good reason for that, which is that if if you sort of let any of your personal political view views seep into your research, then, you know, half the people that read it might like that just fine, but half the people who read it are going to, you know, are, are going to dislike it and discount the research. But that's a wrong reason to be discounting my research. So the research is perfectly valid. I want it to be objective, to look objective, so that everybody can accept it at face value, not just the people who like the results. And that research often finds its way to the very highest levels of both state and federal government. I have worked with uh, members of Congress and other policymakers. I've had research contracts with the U.S. Treasury Department. I've had meetings in Washington at Senator Durbin's office. I've uh, met with basically all the foreign ministers of the European Union to talk about these results. And I hope they use the information widely uh, and, or, or carefully in their deliberations and in their policymaking. But my job is not to tell them what to do. You know, I'm not going to tell Senator Durbin what, you know, how he should vote in Congress. Uh, he, would, uh, he would think that ridiculous, right? He, he, he knows more about that than I do, about how he should vote in the Senate. Uh, and I don't even want to imply that I'm telling him how to vote. I'm just going to give him the information and hope he uses it to for, for good policymaking. I remember, and it's probably still happening, but I remember the, the mandates coming out from Congress saying we're going to have to raise uh, mile per gallon rates to certain thresholds by certain years in order to be more environmentally friendly. But there's obviously an economic impact of that, right? Because it's more expensive for manufacturers to build cars in that way. Can you talk through a little bit maybe of what you found, whether in that example or others, about how the push and pull, the yin and yang of these two things sort of uh, work together and, and why there is a benefit, economically speaking, to being more environmentally friendly? A lot of economics really just kind of looks like, can be explained in simple terms as uh, measuring the cost, measuring the benefits, and see which is larger. And in, in order to compare them in that way, we have to sort of convert all the costs and all the benefits into the same unit of measure, whatever that is, see, you know, see which stacks up higher. And so the typical convenient unit of measure is dollars, but that doesn't mean, you know, that the dollar is king and everything has to be in dollars. I've seen other people measuring uh, the costs and benefits in lives saved or lives lost. You know, you're just counting lives. But doing cost-benefit analysis for something like carbon policy uh, means looking at all the costs as I have done, costs on families, uh, costs of that, uh, uh, of the 
carbon reducing technology, for example, the fuel standards that you mentioned, I mean, those things have costs, as you say, and all of the other energy efficiency standards on appliances have costs and all of the uh, things that businesses do to try to use renewables instead of fossil fuels have costs. And so we need to add up all those costs and not just the dollar cost, but the loss in consumer surplus, you know, the, uh, uh, the disadvantage to consumers of not being able to buy what they want. And then on the other side, I don't work so much on the other side about benefits, but the benefits of carbon policy is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. And, you know, everything I can tell from the natural scientists that are working on that, we've got a horrendous problem looming. You know, within a few years, it's a lot closer than it used to be. We used to talk about multiple decades away when we were going to face this problem, but it doesn't seem that far away anymore. The climate's already changing, and we're going to have huge costs of adaptation. We're going to have huge costs from hurricane storm, uh, storms, sea level rise. You know, my work by itself is mostly on some of the economic costs within the United States of having a you know, climate policy within the United States and who bears those costs. But you have to bear in mind that, you know, all the studies indicate that the benefits of reducing climate change greatly exceed the costs of reducing climate change. So how do you, and, and I know it, this is not your job specifically, but for whether it's an individual who's just trying to decide whether they're going to drive a car that's more fuel efficient or recycle or whatever, when there's costs involved with that, Convincing them that those dollars are well spent, even though it's cheaper to do it the other way for them right now, or or maybe even a small country who you're trying to get involved in something more more globally, that can't be an easy sell for people with limited resources. Um, how have you seen that sort of play out in uh, your different conversations with people around the world? At the international level, the negotiations, I would say, are not going well. <laughs> Uh, there have been, you know, every year there's a new conference of the parties, uh, you know, there's now COP25 or whatever number we're up to where where 200 nations get together and discuss this and they're not making good headway. Uh, and the problem is that the, the poor countries can't afford to do anything and the rich countries, you know, kind of don't want to pay for the all the costs that would be imposed upon the poor countries. I mean, you know, you the U.S. and other developed countries, each of the countries of Europe, for example, might well be willing to pay for their own costs of reducing their own greenhouse gas emissions, but the poor countries cannot pay for their own costs because, you know, they just can't afford it. They're, they have people who are dirt poor and uh, uh, they're worried about nutrition and health and uh, survival. You know, probably the rich countries are going to have to chip in more than their own costs to help pay for the costs of all those poor countries if they want the poor countries to do anything. And, of course, reducing climate change is going to require everybody, all nations, to participate in efforts. So that's not going well. And when I look at the national level at the U.S., uh, you know, that's not necessarily going well either because of uh, politics and the, the, you know, the hairline... <laughs> Uh, majority in the Senate who might want to have some kind of climate policy. Well, it sounds like it might be the same problem that you're seeing on the global level where uh, rich families don't want to pay for the poor families. They might want to pay for their own, but they don't want to foot the bill for yeah. 
uh, for more than their fair share, quote unquote. Well, that's right. I mean, everybody does have uh, some self-interest involved and, and they're looking at their own pocketbook. But, you know, there, there, I have kind of two reasons still for some optimism, at least within the U.S., I, you know, and maybe worldwide. Uh, one is that the, the climate's already changing. I mean, people in Illinois know that it's multiple degrees Fahrenheit hotter during the summer than it used to be. And they know it's actually colder in the winter than it used to be as well. And the storms are worse. And, you know, the city of Chicago is inundated with the, uh, you know, they're going to have to redo all their storm drains and uh, huge infrastructure investments along the rivers to uh, to try to keep flooding within the banks. And that's just Illinois. I mean, you can see the damage around the rest of the country along the coasts. You know, uh, we're, we're going to be losing the Everglades in Florida. There's a heat wave in the Pacific Northwest last uh, summer that uh, was you know, they're not used to temperatures over 90, let alone over 100. And, and there were plenty of places in Oregon, Washington and British Columbia that were up well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit for multiple days. It was killing people. And, you know, so you read the newspaper, you know, that's happening and things are starting to come around in terms of the willingness to, you know, to vote for a package either by individual voters or their representatives, uh, you know, vote for a package where you take everything into account and say, look, I don't like bearing these extra costs of gasoline or the extra costs of electricity, but uh, we got to do something. And uh, so I think there's people are learning. And so there's reason for optimism there. The other reason for optimism is the huge technological changes we've been seeing. Uh, electric cars are getting better and cheaper. The battery technology is getting better and cheaper. The solar technology is getting better and cheaper. And the wind turbines you see all over Illinois now. And the cost per kilowatt hour of electricity generated by those renewable technologies is falling hand over fist year after year. Now, it it may not quite be cheaper than coal yet, <laughs> but it started you know, 10 times the cost of coal or more. You know, it was just hugely expensive to try to generate electricity from wind power or solar power. And there was a lot of discussion about it and people saying, yeah, we need to encourage renewables because the coal is uh, the coal and other fossil fuel emissions are killing the climate. We're going to need to favor these renewables. But if it's 10 times the cost, you, you can hardly get anywhere with that. And yet it's been falling. It's only, you know, it's going to surpass, it's going to fall below the cost of coal. And uh, just because of technological advancement, not even because of policy. So in other words, we may not have to force uh, electricity generators to use renewable power. And we may not have to force people to buy electric cars or, you know, and they're still subsidized now trying to encourage it. But the, but the cost difference is much smaller than it used to be. And it, it just could go the other way and get cheaper. So the only, in fact, I sometimes wonder if the only thing going to save us from climate change is better and faster and cheaper technology. Well, I feel like more people are capitalists than environmentalists, right? Yeah, probably true. <laughs> So the solution here then is on a, on a policy level and, and help huh, encouraging, forcing, however you want to use the word, um, 
companies to follow through on stricter standards for being environmentally responsible? Well, yes. Uh, but given the changes in technology, it might not take much of a policy bump. You know, it might just be, uh, you know, certain incentives and uh, we have uh, subsidies for renewables and subsidies for buying electric cars and there's discussion of those things. But there's other kinds of policies that are that are not too much uh, of a force, you know, or a mandate, but more like a nudge or a encouragement and especially information. So. You know, the government can't, without forcing people to do anything, the government can do a better job of just getting the information out there about what these options are and, you know, where you can do some recycling and where you can save yourself some money by uh, buying an energy efficiency, uh, an energy efficient appliance or a more fuel efficient car. And, um, you know, it's a real communications issue. And, uh, you know, government, all governments, U.S. federal government, each state government, even counties and cities can be, you know, on the lookout for ways to convey better the information about and to help coordinate across households, you know, get a neighborhood involved and get people thinking about it and to get people looking down the road a little bit, because it, when you look ahead uh, t five or ten years, not just about how much worse climate change is going to be in five or 10 years, but even in terms of your own costs, you know, you can see the price of fossil fuels going up, gasoline prices getting worse. And if you look over a five or 10 year horizon, sometimes even shorter, you can see that spending more for a fuel efficient car you'll come out better in the long run. You know, the, the present value of the gasoline savings would exceed the extra cost uh, that you're paying now for an electric car or a fuel efficient car hybrid or, uh, you know, something that would use less gasoline. I asked Don if anything in his research ever surprised him or would surprise most people. His response was an emphatic yes, especially as it related to putting a tax on fossil fuels and who specifically would incur those costs. And I'll admit, it definitely surprised me. If the fossil fuels go up in cost by 1%, then like almost all commodities go up by almost 1% in terms of the cost of production because they're all using fossil fuels. And then when you look at who buys those commodities, there's not that much difference in the uh, mixture of commodities purchased between the high income and the low income. I mean, it's not just, in other words, it's not just gasoline that's more expensive. It's everything that's a little more expensive, like 1% more expensive at the low income group. And everything's about 1% more expensive in the high income group. So everybody has got almost a 1% uh, burden. So it's kind of flat. It's not uh, pro-poor or pro-rich. But the second thing that happens is that the federal transfer programs are indexed to the price level. So, uh, for example, Social Security benefits that are a high fraction of income for low income families, those go, uh, you know, through the uh, cost of living adjustments. So if the carbon tax were to raise the price of all commodities by, you know, a little bit more and less here and there, but all between a half a percent and one percent, then uh, you know, families that don't get tra any 
public transfers from government are not protected. They're going to bear the cost of that. But everybody who gets public uh, transfers from the government, including, for example, social security benefits with cost of living adjustments, they're going to be they're going to get higher uh, receipt of those transfers to cover their extra costs. So they're protected. And so low income people are to different degrees for each family, but they're protected by the fact that their benefits go up with the price level. And then everybody else beyond the low income group are not protected by those public transfers. So the burden's at the high end rather than the low end. So it's not even a regressive tax, it's progressive. Being able to explain something so complex so clearly is just one example of why Don is an excellent professor, but he also happens to really love it. I like teaching the undergraduates there in Geese because they're really smart. They have had diverse backgrounds. They uh, are want to be intellectually challenged, and they like the ideas, you know, just like I did when I was an undergraduate. What was it about this specific opportunity with Geese that uh, made you think this is something you wanted to add to your plate? Well, I started out in really in economics departments within a college like the liberal arts and sciences in the, where there is an economics department at Illinois. And I've also taught at public policy schools. So that's my, that's my field. I do tax policy and environmental policy. And um, so I've kind of tried each of those. I mean, I taught economic students, I taught public policy students. And when, you know, it was, oh, more than a dozen years ago, uh, Jeff Brown was at Illinois, and I had known him already at that point for 15 or 20 years, frankly. I knew him since he was in graduate school and I was a professor. <laughs> and he, he knew me, and so he knew I'd been doing economics and public policy for a long time. And he said, he told me his new center was going to try to cover for teaching and research the kinds of public policies that are of interest to business. And that includes tax policy, which I had done a lot of work on, including corporate tax incentives and uh, effects on investment, and environmental policy, which I had done a lot on, and retirement policy, because as I also mentioned, I'd worked on social security. I took a look and talked to people and I thought, now here's a way to have a, a, a more major impact on the people that are out there in the field doing it, you know, um, that are in business, that are making these decisions, that have to interact not only with customers and suppliers and, you know, supply chains, chain, but also uh, have to interact with government, right? They face these policies and they have to do, make their own corporate kind of strategy decisions to deal with all these policies I just listed. And they have to make sense of them. So they are going to want to know, okay, why is government trying, you know, what is government doing and why are they doing it to me? So, uh, you know, it was, a, it was new for me being in a business school, frankly. And I was, uh, you know, ready for a new challenge. And it has been rewarding. Thankfully, Don's work has proved rewarding for far more people than just himself. And you can see the results from students to senators and economics classes to economics policies. Be sure to join us for the next Geese Download. In the meantime, you can learn more about the Geese College of Business at geesebusiness.illinois.edu.